0: So good evening, everyone. It is so good to be here with you all. I think I know or have met almost all of you already, but just in case, I thought to say a little bit about my background. So my name is Jill Shepherd and I've come from Aotearoa, New Zealand to practice with you and Caroline for the month of April. And I wanted to say just a little bit before I continue with the talk. Partly because where I come from, Aotearoa, New Zealand, in that country, in the native Maori tradition, it's custom before you give any talk for the first time to a new group of people, to say a little bit about where you're coming from. So it's traditional in Maori culture, but these days it's common in wider society there too. What I appreciate about this tradition is the intention. First to say where we're coming from, you could say both literally and metaphorically, so that the people who are listening, they have a sense of who you are, and that helps to create connections and hopefully to help listen with more ease maybe in a similar way in this context, for some people it's helpful to know how am I located socially so that they can listen with more ease. So in that spirit, I can say that I'm white of British ancestry. I was born in the UK and most of my family were working class people from the north of England. So this accent is actually not upper class as sometimes people think. I'm heterosexual, cisgendered, middle-aged female, and although I was born in the UK, I emigrated with my family to Aotearoa, New Zealand as a young child in the 1970s. So I grew up there, I went to school there, and then after I discovered the Dharma in my early 30s, I spent quite a few years living in various meditation centers and monasteries around the world, including Thailand and Australia, the UK, the US. And during that time of exploration, I was very fortunate to be on staff at IMS for seven years, which is where I know some of you from. So my Dharma lineage, so to speak, where I'm coming from in terms of Dharma It's very much connected to this place, both to the IMS Retreat Center and also here at the Forest Refuge. And I've been incredibly fortunate to do many longer retreats at both of the centers. So being back here after a two and a half year absence, it feels like coming home in a way coming home and reconnecting to the familiarity of this beautiful land these woods these meditation spaces that are so powerfully imbued with stillness and silence so i'm reappreciating that deep sense of refuge that this forest refuge provides just how much it's living up to its name as a refuge. And maybe that's true for some of you too. I know some of you at least are starting, arriving at the start of this month. And some of you have been here for quite a while already. But either way, I hope that you can start to settle in and feel more and more at home here, at ease here knowing that wherever you are on this Dharma journey or Dharma adventure, Caroline and I, we're here to support you as best we can. So as I'm just arriving, and some of you are also just arriving, and as we're transitioning into a new month of practice, I just wanted to acknowledge that sense of the good fortune that we have to be here the good fortune that all these different causes and conditions have come together in such a way that we can be here together because it's rare, it's actually very rare to have such an opportunity to spend time in a setting like this that is so supportive of deep stillness and silence and solitude and sangha. And those qualities in turn, they support the deepening and the refining of our meditation practice. So this process that we're engaging in here, the English monk Ajahn Suchito, he talks about it as a process of crafting the heart, crafting or shaping the heart. And so he uses the analogy of a craftsperson And like a craftsperson, they need to get to know their material. So whether they're working with wood or clay or wool or metal or glass or paper, in a similar way, we want to really get to know our own hearts and minds. So we're sensitizing ourselves to what's actually going on in here doing our best to meet all of our experience with patience and kindness and interest. Then we can start to notice the whole range of different intentions and motivations that are emerging, learning how to gently work with them. And that process shapes the heart in ways that allow its natural strength and beauty to come forth. So I'll say more about that strength and beauty soon. But first, just to begin that whole process, or for those of you who have been here for a while, to continue it, I thought it might be helpful just to take a few moments now to reflect on what it is that we're inviting to emerge from this process of shaping the heart. So in other words, just to tune in to your deeper aspirations for being here. Perhaps if you're just arriving to find what they might be, or if you've been here for a while, maybe to reconnect with them. So just a moment or two of silence now. To sense into why you're here. What motivated you to sign up for this time at the Forest Refuge? What qualities would you like to cultivate and strengthen and deepen? And perhaps as part of that process, what qualities might you like to gently release and let go of? So now we have an overall orientation for ourselves. Maybe we're a little clearer about what we're doing here and why. I'd like to start introducing some of the Dharma themes that I'm looking forward to exploring with you over the next four weeks. So just coming back to our aspirations for a minute, you might have noticed that I framed that invitation in terms of on one hand, what we'd like to release, and on the other, what we'd like to cultivate and strengthen. And with that invitation, I'm following an approach that appears all through the Buddha's teachings. It's a twofold approach. On one hand, it involves recognizing what's unskillful, what's harmful, what leads to further suffering so that we can reduce and release that harm. And on the other hand, it involves recognizing what's skillful, beneficial, and leads to freedom, so that we can strengthen those qualities that deepen our ease and happiness and peace. So there are similar patterns found all through many of the Buddha's discourses including one that I think many of you are familiar with, the Satipatthana Sutta, also known as the Four Establishments of Mindfulness. Now, all of you here, you're experienced meditators. So, as you know, the Sutta lays out the core practices of vipassana, or insight meditation, beginning with mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of breathing and then gradually progressing to pay more close and more careful attention to what's happening in the heart and the mind. So just as a side note, I tend to refer to the heart and the mind, or sometimes heart-mind hyphenated, just as a way of signaling that in the Buddha's teachings, the term mind usually includes what we would also think of as emotions and moods and feelings. So the term mind in this context is not just about the intellect, as it might sound to be in English. It's more inclusive of different types of mental activity, including emotions, not just the rational and the cognitive. Okay, so back to the Satipatthana Sutta. I just want to give you an overview, some context, before we come back to the theme that I'd like to focus on. So, as most of you know, in the third of these four establishments of mindfulness, we come to mindfulness of the mind itself. And we're invited to bring awareness very directly to know what mental qualities or states are present or absent. So we're asked to notice the presence or absence of qualities such as greed, aversion, delusion, scatteredness, or concentration, contraction, or expansiveness, and so on. And with that invitation, we're asked to simply bring awareness to what's happening in the mind in a very objective, non-involved way so that we can see clearly what's going on. And once we've got some skill at this, and it definitely is a skill, a training, the fourth establishment of mindfulness asks us to refine our attention, to notice some particular, specific types of mind states that either get in the way of clear seeing, of insight, or help Clear seeing or insight so in the context of the fourth establishment of mindfulness there are two particular lists that I'd like to introduce now and I don't think these are going to be new information for you so anyone want to take a guess what these two lists of mental qualities might be hindrances. hindrances yes Yes, very good, hindrances and awakening factors. So, of course, in the case of the hindrances, they're afflictive mental states that get in the way of clear seeing. And in the case of the awakening factors, these are seven highly skillful qualities that when they're brought into balance, they provide the optimum conditions for transformative insight to arise. And although I want to mostly be talking about the awakening factors, there is a reciprocal relationship between the hindrances and the awakening factors. So we need to know how to recognize the hindrances and help them release so that in their place the awakening factors can arise. So although clearly all are experienced meditators, it's possible still some of you might be a little fuzzy, a little vague about what exactly these two sets of lists include because as we know there are a lot of lists in the Buddha's teachings. So just to, for context, let's name the five hindrances. I like to do this in order. So anyone remember the first one? Desire, desire for sense, pleasures, sensual desire. Yeah, thank you. And the next one. Uh, Yeah, anger, aversion, ill will. Thank you. Third one. Sloth and torpor. Yes, sloth and torpor. Usually people recognize that in the beginning of a retreat. Fourth one. Restlessness and worry, agitation, anxiety, And then lastly, doubt. That was a big response to that one. (laughs) Skeptical doubt. Yeah, thank you. So far, so familiar. Now, I don't know about for any of you, but in my own time on retreats, I've tended to hear a lot more about the hindrances than I have about the awakening factors. So when I was on staff at IMS, I was there for seven years and I worked out that I listened to about 500 Dharma talks while I was on staff. And then since then, many more on Dharma Seed. And I heard way more talks about the hindrances than I did about the awakening factors. And in some ways, this is surprising because without the awakening factors, it's impossible for transformative insights to arise. And this is really the whole purpose of our vipassana practice. So some of you know or may have studied with Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar monk and meditator who's living at BCBS just down the road. And he's written several books on the Satipatthana Sutta and teaches retreats and courses on it. And he makes the point that all of the practices within the four establishments of mindfulness, all of them are aimed at developing the seven factors of awakening. So, all of those different techniques that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta, they're all different ways of preparing the mind for the awakening factors to arise. So given that they are so important, we need to know what they are. So again, let's see. Are you able to name them in order? Because as we'll see later, the order is important. So anyone know the first one? Mindfulness, Mindfulness, yes. And the next one? Investigation, yep. Then Energy. energy and joy, joy, thank you. Then tranquility, excellent. Then samadhi, concentration, and lastly equanimity. Great, so those are our seven friends. And over the course of this month, I'm hoping to explore them in a bit more detail. And I'm excited to be able to do this because on most retreats, we're lucky to get even just one talk on them. And that one talk gives just a more general overview or introduction. But here at the Forest Refuge, we have the luxury of time. So over the next four weeks, we might be able to dive into them in a little more depth. And I hope learn to recognize that for all of us, It's likely that these awakening factors have been and are present much more than we may have realized. And this being able to even recognize them is the first stage in helping them to strengthen and to grow so that they do become powerful resources to help our practice deepen. It does take training to recognize what the awakening factors are and how they show up for us in the context of our own minds, to get a sense of how they feel, what the different flavors of each of them are. So in a few moments, I'm going to run through them again, just to start this process of familiarization. Or for those of you who are already familiar with them, to recognize even in this moment, if they're present and if they are, their relative strength. So as I run through the list again in a moment, as you hear each one, you might just notice in the heart-mind now, which of them is there a sense of mm, recognition, a sense of that feels relevant or alive in your experience right now. And also, which of them might feel less relevant, less apparent. So as we do this, there's one caveat. I invite you to try to do it with as little judgment as possible. So noticing the qualities of mind like this, it's a training in discernment rather than judgment. And for me, the difference between discernment and judgment is that discernment has a a clear, objective awareness, whereas judgment tends to bring with it a more rigid sense of right and wrong, or good and bad, success and failure. And along with it, in judgment, there's almost always a sense of me in there, And that me gets identified with being right or wrong, good and bad, succeeding or failing. So as best you can, just trying to put aside any identification with this process. And just tune in now to the first awakening factor of mindfulness. You can silently ask yourself, is mindfulness present right now? or not? Yes or no? The answer will always be yes because just by asking the question, you've already re-established mindfulness. You're no longer lost in whatever was going on before, so that's an easy win. Okay, so how about the second factor of investigation? Investigation of Dhamma's This is a slightly more technical term, but for now I'm keeping it simple. Investigation, just in the sense of, is there interest and curiosity about your experience? Or are you a bit zoned out? And again, just asking the question, is there investigation? Is itself a form of investigation? So another easy success. And then the third factor, energy. Just taking a moment to notice how is the overall energy now? bit revved up, a bit zoned out, all right in the middle, balanced. Just noticing what that feels like. So with all of this, we're not going into over-analyzing or over-thinking, but just getting that quick, intuitive hit of, oh, energies like this. Or, now we come to the fourth factor, joy or rapture. Can you find any trace of joy in this experience right now? And if joy is a stretch, then is there anything at all in your experience that you can appreciate? Anything that's perhaps pleasant, brings a sense of lightness, maybe even a little delight. And now we come to tranquility. Is tranquility, calm, serenity present now or not? Some sense of calm and stillness. And if it's there, how does that feel in the body and the mind? And as that calm stabilizes, we might find the sixth factor of samadhi coming into play, that stability of mind, steadiness, absorption. So just taking a moment to notice how gathered or steady or stable is the mind right now. And then lastly, equanimity. So just noticing is there some evenness of heart mind, the sense of balance, of acceptance, of ease, the sense of being steady in the middle, not being pulled into wanting or pushed into not wanting. So just noticing without judgment, is equanimity present to some extent or not? So that's just a very quick overview of what these seven factors are and you might get to start to get a clearer sense of this reciprocal relationship between the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So very simply, when the hindrances are present, then by definition, the awakening factors are absent. And vice versa, when the awakening factors are present, then the hindrances are absent. So I find it reassuring that there are only five hindrances, whereas there are seven awakening factors. So the good guys outnumber the bad guys. So I'd like to circle back now to the point I made earlier in relation to having heard a lot more talks about the hindrances than the awakening factors. And there are a few reasons for this that I think might be worth highlighting. One, I think, may be coming from just the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, which as neuroscience researchers have found, this negativity bias tends to make us pay much more attention to what's painful, difficult, and challenging than to what's pleasant and easeful and beneficial. And because the hindrances are afflictive states, the mind does tend to get pulled there. We tend to be more aware of them because of their painful nature. And then it's easy to get caught in struggling with them, developing aversion to them, unconsciously identifying with them and taking them personally, believing them to be me and mine and who I am. And we can get so engrossed in this struggle with the hindrances that we don't learn to recognize the presence of the more refined mental states, such as the awakening factors. And because the skillful states tend to be quieter and more subtle, and since they're not threatening to our well-being, unless we have some steadiness of sati, mindfulness, it's easy to miss their presence altogether. So that's one reason I think we tend to hear so much more about the hindrances. A second, I think, is that sometimes we pay less attention to the awakening factors, ironically enough, because they're named awakening factors or the factors of enlightenment. And so to some people it might sound like these are very rarefied, refined states of mind. And because they're associated with awakening, enlightenment, liberation, or nibbana, people might consciously or unconsciously assume that this must be a very advanced practice and that they're not ready for it yet. And this is another reason I wanted to take plenty of time to explore them as I hope to demystify what they are. And for people who might have some sense that they're beyond your current practice capacity, I think we'll discover that we've already been experiencing them, perhaps much more than you might realize. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here at a forest refuge. Now, having said that, although awakening, enlightenment, nibbana is the goal, is the purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what terms such as nibbana and even insight, vipassana, are referring to. And sometimes people will say to me, well, I have zero interest in nibbana. And so I might say, okay, well, what does that word mean to you? And often they can't really say what it means. They're just clear that it's not for them. So I might ask them, well, why are you doing this practice? And often they'll say something like, well, I'd like to suffer less, or I'd like to live with more ease, or I'd like to help myself and other people more effectively. And all of those, to my mind, are aspects of nibbana. So I'd like to take a slight detour now just to clear up some of these misunderstandings if, if they're there. i just talk about what some of these key terms mean. So beginning with the word insight, the usual English translation of the Pali word vipassana. Vipassana literally means clear seeing, seeing distinctly, or seeing separately. And at first, the insights we have, they tend to be of a more personal, or you could say psychological nature. So we start to understand our own conditioning, our personal histories, our psychological habit patterns. We start to see through the many ways that we tend to get caught in identifying with our experience. And as we see that more clearly, we can release the clinging, the identification, and live with a little more ease. And then as the practice continues, we start to understand more clearly that everything we experience is impermanent or anicca. It's imperfect or unsatisfactory, dukkha. And it's impersonal not-self, anatta. In other words, there isn't any inherent, fixed, unchanging essence of me to whom all this is happening. And as these insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. Whatever level we're practicing at, though, the purpose of insight is to reduce suffering. So I've appreciated the way the English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea, talks about it in his book, Seeing That Frees. So he begins by defining insight quite broadly as, quote, any realization or understanding or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a dissolution a decrease in dukkha. This is a very practical definition that helps us understand whether something is a useful insight or not. Has it brought with it to any degree a decrease in dukkha, stress, distress, suffering? And it reminds us that the point of all of this work that we're engaged in is to free the heart and mind from suffering It's not about trying to have some kind of esoteric far out experience. It's very practical. And yet this is, I think, a common misperception of what the practice is about, that it's something esoteric. And when it comes to words such as awakening or enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana, To some people, these words might sound quite abstract or remote, distant or exotic, maybe even meaningless and irrelevant. For other people, there might be, yeah, there's a vague idea of getting there at some point in the far distant future, wherever there is, but right here and now, that term doesn't sound very appealing. other people perhaps there might be a more definite sense that nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering but there can be an unconscious belief that it's going to take decades of battling with the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive energies before we ever experience anything even remotely like freedom So either way, it's quite common for people to assume that nibbana is something remote, mysterious, not that applicable to their own lives. And sometimes when people hear terms like the awakening factors, they may even pull back thinking it's presumptuous or even arrogant to think that's something we might experience for ourselves. So I'd like to emphasize a very practical definition of nibbana from the suttas, one that's been very helpful in my own practice. And that's the definition of nibbana as the heart-mind that's free from all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, the heart-mind that's free from the three root poisons or defilements. And this definition of a nibbana is something we can experience for ourselves, at least in moments, whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of afflictive states, as can happen on retreat. Now, at first, these moments of release, they might be fleeting, maybe just nanoseconds. But as we learn to recognize them and to strengthen them, they become more and more the default setting of the mind. So from this understanding, Nibbana is not a big bang experience where we achieve some kind of sudden and radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss. It's not so much a static state that we get, but a process that all of us here are going through. And that's one reason why I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun, and it can imply that nibbana is a state or a place. Whereas awakening is a verb, it's an action that happens, it's a process. A process of letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the awakening factors. Okay, with that as context, I'd like to say just a little more about how we can support these awakening factors to arise. So those of you who already have some familiarity with them, you'll know from your own experience that we can't just will them into, into existence. In fact, trying to make them happen, trying to force them to come up, or trying to hold to them if they have arisen, all of that is counterproductive because the underlying motivation there is tainted by greed and aversion, which, as we know, are hindrances. So we can't push to make these things, these qualities arise. But what we can do is help to establish supportive conditions that make them more likely to emerge. So there's a whole section in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, that talks about different aspects of the awakening factors. And early on in that section, it makes an analogy about food to say that just as this body depends on food for its sustenance and survival, in the same way, the hindrances and the awakening factors, they depend on certain fuel So, I'll read you the actual words based on a translation by Bhikkhu Sujato. It says, Practitioners, this body is sustained by food. It depends on food to continue. Without food, it doesn't continue. In the same way, the five hindrances are sustained by fuel. They depend on fuel to continue. And without fuel, they don't continue. This body is sustained by food. It depends on food to continue. And without food, it doesn't continue. In the same way, the seven awakening factors are sustained by fuel. They depend on fuel to continue. And without fuel, they don't continue. Now, perhaps to some ears, that might sound a little abstract, but... I interpret it as an invitation to consider in any moment, what am I feeding my mind? Am I feeding or fueling afflictive mental states or beneficial ones? So this is an aspect of practicing the third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, of mental qualities. And so mindfulness the Satipatthana is a very powerful support, very powerful fuel for helping the awakening factors to arise. And actually elsewhere in that same Samyutta Nikaya, there's a dialogue between the Buddha and a wanderer named Kondalia. And it specifically mentions this connection between Satipatthana and the awakening factors It also describes how good conduct, ethical conduct, is necessary to practice the four establishments of mindfulness. And that what supports good conduct is sense restraint. So as we'll hear in a moment, this sutta sets out a chain reaction of supportive conditions that goes from sense restraint to good conduct To the four establishments of mindfulness, to the development of the seven factors of awakening, and those give rise to quote the fruit of knowledge and freedom, awakening. So I'll read you the actual words from the Sutta now, because although the languages are maybe a little uh, different. Sometimes just hearing the words of the sutta, it sticks in the mind in a way that ordinary, everyday language maybe doesn't. So this is from the Kandalia Sutta. The wanderer Kandalia goes to the Buddha and asks him a question. What benefit does Master Gotama, the Buddha, live for? And the Buddha replies, the benefit the realized one lives for, Kandalia, is the fruit of knowledge and freedom. And then Kundalya asks, but what things must be developed and cultivated in order to fulfill knowledge and freedom? The seven awakening factors. And then Kundalya asks, but what things must be developed and cultivated in order to fulfill the seven awakening factors? the four kinds of mindfulness meditation. In other words, Satipatthana. And then Kondalia asks, but what things must be developed and cultivated in order to fulfill the four kinds of mindfulness meditation? The three kinds of good conduct. That's conduct of body, speech, and mind. But what things must be developed and cultivated in order to fulfill the three kinds of good conduct? Sense, restraint. Okay, so there's a sense there that the seven awakening factors don't just arise out of nowhere. They're supported by causes and conditions that we have some influence over. Namely, where and how do we place our attention? So maybe just to shift gears a little, bring it down to earth, to what we're doing here at the Forest Refuge. So when I began this talk and I was sharing a sense of coming home and how wonderful the conditions are here, I almost was going to say that they're perfect. But I realized even though they're close to perfect The conditions are close to perfect, but they don't negate the first noble truth, namely that there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress. Why is that? Well, to quote the title of one of John Kabat-Zinn's books, wherever you go, there you are. So even though the conditions here might be perfect, we still bring our own minds with us. Anybody notice that? We have these amazing conditions and then the mind just does its thing. And so, right there is the invitation to notice when there is that sense of stress, distress, dukkha how am I getting caught? Where am I putting my attention? What am I feeding in my mind? So as I said, I've done many retreats here almost every year, I think since about 2005. And as I was walking here down the carpeted passageway, I was really appreciating that new flooring, how smooth it is, how well laid it is. Some of you here probably remember the old flooring that was installed when this place was first opened. So all through the dining room and the passageways there were cork tiles and for some reason those cork tiles just kept coming unstuck and peeling up and the maintenance people would have to go and glue them back down and keep doing this over and over and there was this kind of a battle between the cork floors and the maintenance people. Now in the scheme of things it's not that important that the flooring wasn't perfect but For me, because of my own conditioning, I used to be involved in the construction industry many years ago. And so every time I saw those peeling tiles, my mind would get hooked and I'd just proliferate about what they should have done or what could have been done and whose fault it was that it wasn't done properly and how they should fix the issue. Every time. And this kept going on and on. It was dukkha. And finally, at some point, I remembered this idea of sense restraint. Or actually, I think my teacher at the time was Saido Uviva Kananda. And he said to me when I was walking that I shouldn't let my head turn even a millimeter. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't let my eyes move even slightly away from the track in front of me. And when I did that, I started to realize just how much I have been letting my attention keep being hooked by that curled-up cork flooring. And each time, that whole chain reaction would start again. Now, maybe for some of you, the idea of sense restraint sounds like deprivation or burdensome. But in that example, it was such a relief to protect myself from the minds getting hooked yet again into aversion and judgment and distraction. And when my mind was consequently less agitated, it was easier for wisdom to come back and I could reconnect with my higher aspiration. And one day I just had to ask myself, why are you here? Are you here to obsess about cork flooring? Are you here to free yourself? from clinging and resisting for the benefit of all beings. Now that's a relatively mild example. I have plenty of others that are not so appropriate for a public talk. Even so, I'm grateful that the flooring has been replaced with carpet because it's one less thing for my mind to potentially get caught on. And knowing the mind And I don't think it's just my mind. Eventually, there will be something else that will come up to agitate it. But hopefully, the sense restraint can help to protect. Sense restraint and mindfulness will come in again and redirect, reconnect to wisdom and compassion. So if you happen to have noticed any similar process in your own mind, maybe not about the flooring but something else here i just invite you to try to bring humor to that to depersonalize it to see it as just the nature of the untrained mind and to meet it with compassion because this is actually it's why we're here we want to see more clearly What do our untrained hearts and minds do when they're left to run wild without any guidance? And we also want to see what is possible when we learn to shape our hearts and minds as Ajahn Suchito describes it, shape our hearts and minds in ways that allow the seven factors to arise and to deepen. So I know that all of you here have experienced at least a few of these awakening factors, even if just for a few minutes at a time. They might not be fully strong and stable. They might be just little buds, as Bhikkhu Analyo likes to say. But even tiny buds, they have the potential to open into flowers, which in turn bear fruit. And those fruit can turn into mighty trees. So I hope that this overview of the awakening factors might give you some sense of possibility or inspiration about where all of this practice is leading. And just to close, to remember that all of this is a natural process. So in the suttas it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean. So the awakening factors incline and flow towards liberation, towards freedom. And there's a natural flow, a kind of a positive chain reaction that takes on its own momentum. And when the practice is in this stage, we don't need to do anything except try not to interfere We can settle back and just allow all of these wholesome states to strengthen, to deepen, to flow naturally, so that the perfect conditions for deep insight can arise. And that whole natural momentum begins with sense restraint. Sense restraint supports that strong continuity of mindfulness, and mindfulness in turn helps the awakening factors to arise. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to experience these seven factors of awakening that support transformative insight and lead to the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Shall we close by chanting the sharing of merit? Oh, sorry, the reflections on the sharing of blessings.
1: Things of my life, may they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve the Buddha is my excellent refuge unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma the solitary Buddha is my noble guide the Sangha is supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.